Hello and welcome to the Vorthos Cast. We'd like to thank all our patrons who support us at patreon.com slash thevorthoscast. This show can't happen without you folks, so thank you for donating and keeping the show running. Jay will not be here this week, so I will be leading the podcast. I am Lorelai Weissel, and I think Jay is off on Dominaria, moving the Yavamaya Rift back to Argoth, where it belongs. I'm Brian Dawes, and I also think Jay is planeswalking back to Dominaria, but I think he's going to break out Merrill Age in time for the Ravnica Allegiance. I'm Ashley Barrow, and I don't know where Jay is because yesterday my Twitter account was suspended for 12 hours. For real, Jay's just on a business trip, so we can make jokes about him at his expense, and there's nothing he can do about it. (laughs) (laughs) Ashley, do an evil laugh. (laughs) 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 I'll accept that. We don't have a whole lot of news this week. But there is one big thing that you may have seen go out over the previous weekend. Some fancy foil cards that were sent out as an apology for the absolute bungling of the Hasbro toy shop's handling of Guilds of Ravnica Mythic Edition sales. So some people received fancy foil cards of fancy foil rares and mythic rares and what we learned are two uncommons that are part of the box topper promotion of a new master set, Ultimate Masters, which releases on December 7th. So Ultimate Masters is going to be a new master set. You know, we've seen master sets in the past with fancy new art, and that's true of this set as well. These Ultimate Box Toppers are going to be one in every booster box. There are 40 of them total, so these are our first previews from this all-reprint set. And there's so much new art, so we're gonna go talk about it. So our first card is Bitter Blossom, the powerful fairy tribal enchantment that has seen all kinds of play in Standard and then now in Modern and in Commander and in Cube, and people love it. And it's got new art from Jesper Ising. His bugs and fairies and angles and colors are fantastic, so he's perfect artist for this piece it's all got the blues and the pinks that are indicative of Lorwyn. i love the bug fairies i've always liked that design it's very unique in terms of magic fairies and feels very fairy tale-esque and the cool thing about these box topper promos is the arts kind of extended outside of the box from a traditional magic card they've kind of erased the borders around the art and zoomed in a little bit so you get even a little closer up look. The colors are great. Oh man, the colors are so great. It's very tasty. I want to eat it. The flavor. You you can't eat fairies. They're sapient beings. I mean, you could. They are jerks, so I mean, you know, I'd probably actually be fine with that. Now, that's how you get eaten by fairies is calling them jerks. Yeah. Just saying. You'll be fine. The next card is Demonic Tutor, which is a rare in this set. It's been uncommon in the past. This is art from Ixalan. This was a piece that's in the Ixalan art book, which we didn't know it was a thing. This is the second piece like this. There was a vampire art also in the art book that wasn't on a card and ended up being on a promotional version of Vampiric Tutor earlier this year. 
this one we now know is on demonic tutor and it's got one of the ixalan demons in a little dinghy with a pirate rowing down a river in the jungle telling them where to go which is kind of goofy but also kind of like romantic <laughs> two little chaps in the tunnel of love you don't know and then you get eaten by a dinosaur or you go down a waterfall um, oh no, it's like that scene in The Emperor's New Groove where they fall down a waterfall. <laughs> I'm perfectly fine with, like, Emperor's New Groove references on Ixalan. That movie's fantastic. Actually, I think there should be plenty more of them. It's cool to see Ixalan keep showing up. It's visually one of my favorite planes. Cynthia Shepard crushed the art direction on that block. So it's just cool to me to see the Ixalan demons especially show up because we didn't actually get a demon card. They just showed up on a couple pieces of art and we never got to see Aklazats, the bat god of night. And hopefully that's a thing that plays out if we ever get to see a return commander. Yes, or a future commander. That would be cool also. That art is by Zach Stella, who is fantastic, which I'm going to say about every artist because they're all fantastic. The next card is Gorio's Vengeance by Randy Vargas. If you play a lot of modern, this is a very powerful reanimation spell. Can get Emrakul the Aeon's Torn out of the graveyard while her shuffle ability is on the stack because this card's an instant. It gets Grizzlebrand, sometimes it gets Borgmos Enraged, and then throw a bunch of lands. It's a combo-tastic card with new art that reanimates a legendary creature and something I didn't notice when the card was first previewed but then I noticed when Randy posted the full art is so you have this ghostly kami thing in the foreground but in the background there is a corpse slumped over a stump in the swamp with a knife in its back that's the creature that was killed and what we're seeing is their haunting spirit crawling back out of the swamp to attack again which is just the story of the card in the art so wonderful chef kiss randy just hid that detail back there the lighter background with the dark ghost in front of it really plays with your sense of perspective and where your eye wants to go it just makes the whole thing very creepy in a way that the kami are i love it i'm trying really hard not to say big mood <laughs> uh yeah yeah because you don't have to say it about like half of these things especially the whole slumped in a swamp with a knife in your back that's a big mood yeah that's that's the mood yeah the good news is if you find yourself in a situation you can just get reanimated with johan Bowden's new reanimate art which is cool in itself and is even cooler when you realize that it's reanimating a grave titan with funny flavor text from Liliana Vest that says, you'd better be worth it. It's wonderful. It's exactly the kind of caustic sarcasm that Liliana has. And reanimating a Grave Titan absolutely is worth it because you just slam 10 power and toughness onto the board for one black mana. And I love that this follows up the Animate Dead from the premium deck series Graveborn which had the Sun Titan on it because Sun Titan has a favorable interaction with Animate Dead because that card's an enchantment and they can kind of continuously cycle and get each other back and whatnot. So putting another Titan on another reanimation spell is a cool theme and now I'm going to be the kind of person who wants cycles and yep. wants 
the other three titans to be on reanimation spells in the future me too put a prime time on exum and stitch together can have a sun titan and i don't know what you do for frost titan but there's got to be one more revival spell that i can't remember we'll figure it out well not we'll figure it out wizards will have to figure it out it's their job not ours Ooh, 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 ooh. You could use uh, the, uh, oh man, what's the Gifts Ungiven one? Unburial Rites. That one, yes, there you go. Unburial Rites on the uh, the Blue Titan, and we've got our cycle. So make it happen, preferably all in this set, so we have a great reanimator <laughs> deck in the draft. With reanimating some of these cards, you're going to have a plenty of good deck anyway. Especially if you're in black and green or black and blue because our next card is Tassiger the Golden Fang who is even twinkier in this art than his <laughs> Fate Reforged card. No bananas though. Aww. But this is Igor and I I can't pronounce Igor's last name. I'm I'm not going to try. I'm Igor, I'm so Luke? sorry. I'm not going to bungle it. Igor's phenomenal. I love Igor's art so much. You can see Tassiger's rib cage, and he's, like, so pale. Like, he almost looks sickly, which is kind of appropriate for an asshole prince who doesn't do anything himself and is lazy and whips people and is spoiled. He's just a sick dude who has lots of problems and then betrayed his whole clan and got to live as a zombie necklace for a thousand years. Do you remember the necklace that I made of him? Yes, I do, actually. That was fantastic. It's hanging up right there. Our next card is, I think, my favorite new art of this bundle. It's the card Through the Breach, which you see played in the same decks as Gorio's Vengeance, because throwing down Emrakuls and Grizzlebrands and World Spine Worms and Borgmos and Rage for one turn is all you need to win often. God, I cannot wait to see a foil of this. Kelly Diggs had a great story about the new art description for this card. So he went to people on the play design team and said, Hey, so we know Through the Breach is a card that people use in tournament decks, and we want to make new art for it that does something related to the cards that people tend to play it with. So, like, give me a creature that people use most with Through the Breach. And they came back and said, Emrakul. This is kind of a reimagining of a piece of concept art that we got to see in the story Emrakul Rises by Tyler Jacobson. Or the concept art was by Tyler Jacobson, not the story. And then Randy Vargas essentially redid the piece and added in a little Nahiri. And this is Nahiri summoning Emrakul into Innistrad through the Drownyard Temple portal that she created with the Cryptoliths. I love her. She's so itty bitty and teeny. Well, that's because she's summoning a 1515, and she's just a little humanoid core. She's cute. <laughs> this art on this card is almost makes me want to build this deck in Modern just so I could play the... Oh my god, I love this art so much. This card has me changing my mind about how I want to build my Corrupted Church of Avacyn commander deck. <laughs> I built it around Bruna the Fading Light. And it's, it's a mono-white and features the Corrupted Avacyn church stuff, as well as a bunch of Emrakul-themed things, including Emrakul herself. But because Archangel Avacyn from Shadows Over Innistrad is a DFC with a mono-white side and a mono-red side, her as the commander makes it a red-white deck, 
which means I could play this through the breach in the Emrakul deck and have the moment of Emrakul's ascension onto Innistrad. Oh and Red White also means I can play Nahiri the Harbinger and gets me stuff like Flameblade Angel and the Hanweir meld cards. I kind of want to change it and have a Boros, Emrakul, Corrupted Church deck in Commander. And it's just so me. Ah, I'm so excited. It's so good. That sounds awesome. It almost makes me want to do that as my Jeskai deck. Because I'm doing the whole thing where I have one deck for every color combination. I only have Jeskai left. I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do with it. But if I do this and have the original Bruna and Sigar or not Sigarda, but a Bruna and Gisela and Avison, then I have their flip versions, it could work. I just need to figure out who's the commander. This sounds amazing. Okay, y'all think that y'all's Eldrazi-themed commander decks are cool flavor wins? One time, my sister and someone else, I don't remember who, were playing commander, and she had Ulamog, and they had Mog Catcher. <laughs> and I just lost it. <laughs> wow. That's funny. But y'all know that I love this art because I'm going to love anything with Emrakul and her pink spaghetti goodness. Yeah, Emrakul's my mom. Well, then that makes you my daughter. Oh, hi, mom. Well, you know me and Emrakul. We've been kind of the thing for a while. That's okay. We're all going to be Emrakul. And we can all simultaneously be moms and children all at once, which is... Very creepy and body horror-y. So, people who don't want to listen to that, we can move on to Chris Ron's new art for Eternal Witness. Still looks like an elf! Still looks like an elf! Yeah, I know, Brian. It's it's not an elf. She's still a human. Should be! It freaking should be! It has a leaf dog, and the flavor text still lends itself to being an elf. Yeah, it does have a leaf dog. Mike Linneman has been all over that leaf dog, even with the emojis. It's so good. Chris Ron's just incredible. I love this art so much. This is now going to have a fancy promo version that Commander players are just going to lose their minds over. Hell, I need this for my modern deck. The modern decks that play this with Collective Company and, and whatnot are going to love it too. When Wizards gives new art to cards that they know people love, it's always just like a... a it's it's a dull moment, but it, like it's a good feeling. It just like it validates your love of these cards. Which is why I'm also happy about the next card, Life from the Loam, which has new art still set on Ravnica, but less specifically Golgari. It has a lot of plants creeping up the sides of some spires and buildings and whatnot. And that art is by Sung Choi. It's just beautiful. We've got a darker foreground and a lighter background, and then a grayed out far background. There's so much depth in it that really draws your eye to the midground. It's cool. It's a cool composition. It's the kind of thing I love as a film person. It approaches frame within a frame. It's just a beautiful card and a, such a powerful card. I have a Titania deck also, and this thing is just an engine in Commander. And if I played Legacy, I would play Lands, which is where this card shines as well. And then here's the one that people can't stop talking about. The new Tarmogoyf art by Philip Berberin. It's weird for me to say this, but it feels like late 90s magic art. That's weird for me because I harp on late 90s magic art a lot because so much of it is really not good. That's not me saying this art is bad. It's it's this art has the feel, but like it has the 
the zaniness and the looseness while still technically being better than a lot of the late 90s art. And a small detail I love is that this Tarmogoyf is chasing the little deer, which is a reference to Tarmogoyf's previous Modern Masters art, which has a little deer in the art as well. So I like that they kept that as a through line. And then also set this Tarmogoyf in a winter landscape, which is kind of a reference to the original Orgoyf, which was in Ice Age. All those little details just add up to make this new Tarmogoyf art really fantastic. Next card is Fulminator Mage with new art by Lucas Graciano. It's outstanding. We have a Flamekin from Shadowmoor. Arms in the air, burning everything to the ground. Mood. <laughs> yeah, that, that is also a mood. I don't know how Lucas so accurately illustrated April King's Invitational <laughs> card. If you, if you don't know April, she is fantastic. She is one of my favorite people in the magic community. She loves land destruction, which makes her an awful person by default, but we like her anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the cinders of Shadowmoor just have this contrast between the charred charcoal gray and the blazing bright inferno of their bodies. And this piece in particular has all the oranges offset by this blue sky in the background that just contrasts perfectly and just makes it pop so much. The color is fantastic. The detail is fantastic. Even the anatomy is brilliant on this piece. I love it so much. Magic has so many great artists. Next card is Platinum Empyrean, which has new art from Igor again. Almost the entirety of this piece is just a blue-gray, but it still looks amazing because of the light and the shadow and the slight warm moments in it. Igor does so much beautiful work with so little. I just love this piece so much. And it's a cool big robot. It looks like something Karn will eventually transform into. Well, I mean, it's a thing that Karn probably made, so that's neat too. Young Hao Han has a new piece for Ancient Tomb, which I want to say might be on Ixalan. It looks like something similar to the sarcophagi we've seen the Legion of Dusk entomb its ancient vampires in. I can't confirm that, though. We need to see the full art posted because there might be some details on it. Either way, it's cool to see new art on this piece in a very obvious tomb fashion and just a really different take because the original art's kind of goofy and then the Zendikar Expedition art is real Zendikari just in terms of the landscape and the composition. And this is just a different take on it, which, which is great to see. And one of the things I love about reprints getting new art is that it lets people who play those cards pick which art they like best. So this is just kind of a more stoic and quiet interpretation okay brian it's time yes. you can talk about merit lage dark depths got a sweet reprint with an with awesome art and it's, it's once again shifting the viewpoint of merit lage and she's coming up from the bottom and you can see the little person walking over the ice and you now it just looks as soon as that ice ice counter comes off snap you're dead gotcha 
yeah, this is the inversion of the cold snap art for Dark Depths, which is looking down at a person walking across a frozen lake and you can just see Marilage's face underneath the ice. And this switches it like 180 degrees so that you're looking up. But it gets you a much better look at Merit Lage in her eldritch form. This is Matthias Kolros doing this piece. And it's never Merit Lage, but this art is awesome. And I understand people love the card and that it's very powerful. I have it in my snow deck for Commander. And like I said, if I played Legacy, I would play Lands. And this would be one of the main win cons. And, by the way, this gets reprinted with the Legendary Crown on the new frame, which looks awesome on these lands. I want to see that token. Oh my. I like that you can see your hands. Merit Lage has hands. Little noticed fact, she's got hands. Something Immacul does not have. So, again, that's why they make a good team. When looking for a romantic partner, you should find someone who has some traits that compliment yours because they are things that you do not possess and and for Marilage and Emrakul Marilage is just the one who wears the hands in the relationship <laughs> Emrakul can fly and is not trapped in ice so like they balance each other out Marilage can also fly and Emrakul is trapped in the moon but trapped in the moon is not trapped in ice well the moon controls the tides and um there's water underneath the ice that's love this reminds me of a conversation that they had on the At Your Instep podcast where Emrakul had a husband who was just very supportive. Really reminds me of that conversation. It's great. You should check out their podcast. It's a laugh and they also do a lot of Torment Country. But anyway, yes, this card is awesome. The, re- the art is awesome. And I can't wait to see the token. And we have one more card. Junk Park did new art for Urborg Tomb of Yogmoth which is where the Stronghold landed after the Wrathy Overlay, and it's where Belzenlock rebuilt it as his Cabal Stronghold. And this art is not depicting that. This art is depicting an actual kind of tomb-like monument with the Mask of Yogmoth in it, and you can see the little trail of Ikor going down the monument steps and into the swamps. And it's cool art. And this isn't a strike against it from a technical standpoint, but I don't like that it's like this purposefully built monument to Yogmoth in Urborg. That doesn't feel right to me as a story person. Yeah, because canonically it feels like that would have been one of the first things that Belzenlock tore down after he rose in power in Urborg. Well, and it feels like a thing that no one would have ever built. The art is good, it's cool art, and we've got the cool box topper masterpiece thing, and it's got the legendary crown, so... I, I, don't, I don't know. You could think of it sort of like a what-if. Like, here you go, this is an actual tomb, so that people who were confused by the name can have this one. Yeah, that's fair. This land did come from Time Spiral, too, so maybe it did come from a timeline where they actually honored his death there. Who knows? It's It'd be weird. It kind of makes sense, I guess. I would buy that as an explanation, and I'll headcanon that for this art. It is cool art. Ugh. It, just, it, it rubs me the wrong way. That's fair. In a visceral way that I can explain with words, but that doesn't really convey the meaning of why I don't like it, and why I will continue playing with the original art. And that is all the new art we've gotten so far from Ultimate Masters. Hopefully we will get more. The rest of the cards from the set are going to be previewed 
the second to last week in November. So that's the week of American Thanksgiving on Monday and Tuesday, and then the full gallery on Wednesday. We will have a short episode to talk about our flavor gems at that time because we can't talk anymore about the set because we haven't seen anything else. So this weekend was Ravnica weekend where you potentially got your first look at the Ravnica D&D book at your local game store. And it's, I think it's at the end of the month, it's out everywhere. So if your local game store has the book, definitely go check it out and start your D&D adventures on Ravnica. Like, officially, for real, the streams are crossed. There's no going back. We've defeated Gozer. So that's cool. And it also releases on D&D Beyond. I know I'm going to be reading mine, assuming I don't go to sleep early. I'm thinking I might just stay up till midnight and start reading over that tonight, because just really interested. Nice. Our other thing to talk about this week is the new Magic Story, which, after a week off for no reason that I already ranted about last week, so I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to go off again, we got the Golgari Story by Nikki Drayden, titled Death's Precious Moments. And boy, was there a lot of death in this one which is fitting for a Golgari story. So we begin on a rot farm in a canal pretty near the surface, so pretty far from central Golgari territory, kind of the the rural part of Golgari lands. Out in the boonies. Yeah, basically out in the boonies. And, and we meet Bozak, who is a crawl rot farmer who specializes in mushrooms and fungus and identifying and harvesting them. And he's part of this crawl family. I forget exactly how many kids they said they uh, were part of the clan. It was it was like 112 or something, which is pretty typical because they're bug people. Which, by the way, I'm really happy that this story was about a bug person. Yes. I like the crawl. I like bug people. Actually, I know you love bugs. I've written a bunch about sapient arthropod species in fantasy before and how difficult it is to make them sympathetic because they are so diverged from a hominid form it's easier for humans to identify with things like goblins and elves and even zombies and vampires because they are basically just differently shaped humans arthropods are so weird and crawl especially are bizarre and i think nikki did a fantastic job most humans i'd say I'd say I'm the exception there. I relate way more to arthropods than to people-shaped things. It's in general, which is why arthropods are always used for evil races or to other races. So we have Bozak, who's a rot farmer, and the crawl communicate like insects with all kinds of sounds. Nikki Drayden describes the way they move their wings and legs, so kind of cricket-like. They hear word coming through the din of insect noises that there is a new lich in the Golgari swarm. And they're hoping it's a crawl because right now Mazarek is the only crawl necromancer that is in a high enough class to interact directly with Braska. And then they find out that the new lich is just another Devkaran elf. Like Gerard before him, like Spogthir before him... And if you listen to our episodes on the guilds, the Golgari have basically been cycling through these two groups who like to oppress the other and then overthrow their oppressors in cycles. So there's the Divkarn elves 
who also like the humans and then there's the um terra just terra something with a t jay knows the word and i'm blanking on it but it includes like the crawl and the gorgons and the non-humanoid sapient members of the guild and I would be able to tell you if you couldn't, if you didn't just say that you didn't remember it, because now I don't remember either. <laughs> oh no, it's spreading. we got to finish the podcast quick before we all forget everything forever. <laughs> Bozak leaves his home and the safety of his mother's exoskeleton, who is, like, gigantic, which makes sense because they're bugs, but, like, it's cool to think that there was a gigantic sapient bug on, on Ravnica. I almost said Innistrad. It would make a lot more sense on Innistrad. I'm honestly not sure how sapient the bug was because, like, jumping ahead a little bit, from my interpretation of the story, it sounded like the mother that they were referring to was, a, like, a huge bug that their actual crow mother injected her eggs into, and this thing was just surviving until they hatched and then they devoured it and let it go. I think this might be one of, I think it was like a gray skull beetle or something from the, like, they had a picture of it from the original Ravnica. That makes sense to me. My interpretation, that was pretty clear that it was their literal mother who laid the eggs in a host, and then when the eggs hatched, they devoured her. Interesting to hear your takes on it, because that's fair, and I'm interested what our listeners think and how they interpreted that part of the story. Point is... Bozak leaves because he wants to become a big-time necromancer like Mazarek, and hoping he can, like, be an apprentice of Mazarek one day. A big city necromancer. <laughs> well, and, th and that's an interesting thing. So he goes to the Undercity and, like, the core big urban part of Golgari space, and this elf lich lord is essentially holding a contest for a new apprentice, He's going to send them off on a dangerous quest to collect all these different mushroom and funguses and bring them back to him. Bozak ends up meeting another crawl named Limin, who grew up in the Undercity and was like friends with elves. So there's like a, a culture shock moment where the rural crawl has different cultural movements and languages than the elvenly assimilated city crawl which is just such high level world building in such small short story space it's another thing i have loved about nikki's stories is how much how much information about the world and the characters she puts in such short sentences it made bozak really feel like an outsider in this situation especially within his own species and his own people I like that it's like a, you know, a country boy coming to the city to make it big kind of story, but it's not told with a human character. It's, you know, a bug person. Right. I like that kind of spin on it, that it's, they're bug people, but like, I mean, they still, they can still have the same classic story archetypes that humans get. Once again, Nikki Drayden just knocks it out of the park with making a character that we probably have no right feeling any kind of empathy with. Unless you're me or Lorelai, because we like books. Yeah, it's... <laughs> the, the way that she makes him feel like a person that we could relate to, even though, like, there's no way we should be able to do that. It's... it's She's done a great job with it, again. 
Yeah, she really balanced the alien parts of crawl culture with the very human parts. Here's the thing, I feel like, um, especially in the case of this story, the stuff that makes them really alien uh, makes them seem really real, which makes them seem more relatable. Does that make sense? Yes, because the things that make the crawl alien are stuff that Nikki put a lot of effort into establishing world building for and establishing meaning for. And like when you know this is, you know, this is where they live, this is how they think, this is how their family works, it's, you know, this person has a family and a home, they have more in common with us than like, say, like the random humans who we don't know anything about. Exactly. So, all these wannabe apprentices go on this dangerous mission to collect these funguses, and almost all of them immediately die in a wood wraith attack, <laughs> which I kind of laughed at. You know what's funny, though, is if... If he had just not said anything, he probably would have gotten the internship and had no competition. But he's a generally good person. Also kind of fits the kind of naive country bumpkin trope. Yep. Where he's not like cutthroat like the city people. Yeah, but that was the first thing that crossed my mind when it happened. I was like, oh. Well, you're from the Atlanta area, so. <laughs> Fair enough. One of the elves, Zegodonis, deliberately bumps him and breaks his map. Right at the beginning, which seems like a jerky city jerk thing to do. So Bozak and Lemon, this other crawl, and uh, Gorgon and a couple elves survive this attack. And then they're in another room, and one of the elves trips and falls and gets impaled by a root, but also breaks open the safety containers of some of the funguses in their bag. And this zombifying fungus shoots its spores into the elf's face. And this is all based on the real-life cordyceps fungus, which infects bugs and makes them climb up plants, latch on to the appropriate point where the humidity and the altitude is correct for the cordyceps to release its spores and maximize its transmission of its young. So this elf starts like, oh, I wonder which tree is the tallest. And everyone's like, look, we got to help this elf. And Lemon's like, this is my friend. we got to help him. And then Bozak's like, nothing we can do. So this elf climbs a tree and they talk about how, like, look, he's going to clamp down up there and then the fungus is going to sprout out of all his orifices and spread its spores and there's nothing we can do. The bottom half of that paragraph is actually the passage that made me realize that the mother, as he relates to them in the story, isn't the mother that actually laid the eggs. So... In that passage, so it says, I didn't feel sorry for him. It's it's the way of life. Not much different than how my siblings and I came to our mother. She was the one who nurtured us, who'd given herself, but she wasn't our biological mother. Oh, I might have missed that part then. Okay, that makes more sense. Congrats, Brian. You you are the Vorthos champion this, this week. This is the Golgari stuff. The parasitism, the cycles of life and death. Death begets life, life begets death. It's cool. Pretty gross, too. Yeah. It's still pretty gross, and if I say it's gross, then that means it's pretty gross. So Bozak and Lemon end up finding this very dangerous mushroom called the Angel's Wing Fungus, which makes you go into a murderous rage and then completely disappears like 24 hours later, except you're covered in the blood of 24 people that you just murdered. And it's very similar to this other fungus called Griffin's Paw, but Bozak knows the difference and is able to help find the correct fungus although it's right near a moss dog cave. This is the last one they have to find, and as soon as Bozak gets it, Lemon throws a rock at the moss dogs and says, Ha ha! 
I'm gonna get this thing back to the Lich first, and I'll be the apprentice. And he flies away and deliberately leaves Bozak, because Bozak has a bum wing, so he can't fly. So this sucks for him, because the other crawl that he thought was his friend, because they were crawl, leaves him in the dust, because still the difference between the rural crawl and the urban crawl. And it, it's just such a layered cultural interaction. And once again, I love Nikki's stories. But then the Gorgon shows up at a similar time. And as the Moss Dogs are chasing them, the Gorgon petrifies two of them. Bozak summons a bunch of flies or crickets what? or locusts to attack the last Moss Dog. And tries to stop the Gorgon from petrifying it because the locusts are doing their job and they could escape. But the Gorgon petrifies the Moss Dog and all the locusts. And then she's like, what? They're just bugs. Which is like a super racist thing to say to a crawl. Because the racial politics in the Golgari are really complicated given their history of cycles of oppression. Especially with the Gorgons and the crawls supposed to be in the same side of that oppression. So very complicated politics in this story on top of all the bizarre life cycle stuff. So Bozak ends up killing the Gorgon and stabs her with a staff made from the leg of that beetle that they gestated in. So he's chasing down Lemon, and Lemon is almost back at the Lich until, surprise, Zegodonis, that jerk-face elf, survived the Wood Wraiths, smashes into Lemon, kills him, and Zegodonis and Bozak get back to the Lich at about the same time. The Lich says, okay, you both made it. You both can be my apprentice. But it turns out this Divkarin elf is super racist towards the Crawl, as they tend to be. So while Zegodonis, the elf apprentice, is getting all the actual necromancy training, Bozak is stuck with the rhizome lurchers doing the grunt work and the custodial work. So while he's hiding, he overhears two Boros come in with the Lich Lord and talk about how they arrested some gruel rioters for this massacre on Tin Street, even though it was actually this Lich Lord who created the murderous scene using the one murder fungus they mentioned earlier in the story, and how he was going to plant a neutralized one on Vraska so that the Boros could frame Vraska and arrest her, and the Devkarn elves could once again gain control of the guild. So the Crawl, Bozak, knowing that Vraska is the person who elevated Mazarek and the Crawl to their current position within the guild, says, oh no, I have to do something. So he goes over to this huge guild hall where there's a big amphitheater hanging from the ceiling and he has another crawl guard fly him up there, but he has to climb on the outside of it and he's like super scared of heights because he can't fly and is super uncomfortable. So he's like, look, I have to save our guild master. I have to save our people. And he eats the zombifying mushroom because it's going to compel him to climb higher and higher and higher. And that's the only way he can convince himself to get up to the balcony where Vraska is being a politician and, like, saying hi to the crowds and giving a speech and whatnot. And kissing crawbabies, don't forget. Yes, kissing <laughs> crawbabies. So he climbs up and he's struggling to fight off the zombie parasite's drive to climb higher when he finally gets to the chamber. And the guards see him and they start pulling him back and then he, like, rips off his own arm because the pain is numbing in his body because he's dying. So he's like, whatever, I'll just ditch the arm. And he grabs 
the fungus that has been planted on Vraska's dress, stuffs it into his mouth, and says, like, look, I gotta get away from here so we can't trace anything back to Vraska. And even with his bum wing, he just dives off the balcony and flies the best he can. And then he falls. And he falls. Very... And then he wakes up. And it's very confusing. And he can feel, like, the pressure of the fungus behind his eyes and, like, inside his body. And his hearing is all muffled, but he's like, somehow I survived. Look at that. I can't do some things well, but I guess I can do some things good enough. And then he looks up and hears some of the voices. And it's Mazarek right next to him. And just like Bozak was the, the steward of the rhizome lurchers before... Mazarek is now raising him as a fungal zombie. Bozak fell and died, saving Vraska from this Boros plot to frame her. As a zombified fungus crawl, he finally gets to work with Mazarek, which is like kind of the monkey's paw twist on his desire from the beginning of the story, but he kind of accepts that because that's the Golgari way. You live and you die, and... He has his whole death in front of him, as he says at the end of the story. That cute turn of phrase is kind of cheeky and also true, and that's how the story ends. This ending has me wondering how much of this is actually sentience on his part, or is like is he now partial lich, or like is he just a zombie, like following orders, or like how much free will does he have? Like it sounds like Mazarek was controlling him to a certain extent. But the way the story is written makes you think that he has a amount of sentience. The end seemed like a little of both. He's under a necromantic spell, and the fungus is still influencing his biology, but his mind is still in there a little bit. So it's it's like this weird confluence of life and death, and these forces that are pushing his life, well, I guess his death, his undeath, forward. This is death's precious moments. Like, he finally gets to wake up from being dead and be part of the Golgari Swarm longer and with the most important crawl in the guild, knowing that he saved Vraska. Nikki created a character in a short story that we fell in love with and then killed them and we still feel good at the end about it. Like, it's so good. It's amazing. It does help that this is a world where you can die and come back from the dead, essentially. Right. So death matters here a little less than it does in some other places. This is, again, Nikki's fantastic blending of an urban lifestyle and this kind of high fantasy elements from Ravnica. And this is a story about a farm boy who comes to the city and dies, but, you know, because he's in the Guild of Necromancy... That's not the end of his existence. And he still gets to, like, do stuff and be useful. Like, it's... I really hope it's a sentient kind of lichdom. And, like, I would love it. Like, this is the kind of character that could possibly come back. Because I feel like if there's any kind of sentience and he's able to explain himself to Masaryk, there's a whole lot of story left that you could write about that. Like, how he becomes elevated in the guild and, like, gets his own training to become a lich lord or whatever in the Golgari and... That would be so cool to have some kind of follow-up story on this guy. And... Oh, definitely. And while we're on the topic of how this story could relate to other stories. This goes to what I was saying the week before last, that the Gruul 
although they're known as Lady Desires of Violence on the plane, are often tools of the other guilds to attack each other for politics. So it is not usually like that they they're planned. They're usually being used by the other guilds, and it usually mostly hurts them. This story references a criminal event that happened in Clans and Legions. So this Tin Street Massacre was attributed to this gruel rioter, who is apparently the person that the Golgari Lich Lord gave this murderous fungus so that they would kill these people. And then the protagonist of the Clans and Legions story, the gruel rioter they released, who was related to the murderer, was apparently one of these people that the Boros just arrested and threw in prison for no reason. I had speculated two weeks ago that she may have been an actual criminal, but this story now lets us know that she was totally innocent in the matter and connects to that Boros conspiracy, which is also connected to this Golgari conspiracy. And now I'm curious how much of these stories are going to connect to each other, because I speculated about that in previous episodes, and now this is our first super real concrete connection between two stories. So we still haven't got the explanation where that dimensional anomaly from the Is It story came from. But it'll probably relate in some way by the time we get through the stories. Yeah, I'm willing to bet that the, the guilds from the next set are going to tie in somehow because there's no way. It sounded like it felt kind of random, like we were getting all this random backstory, but it would be really cool if at the end of everything these are all connected in some grand scheme that actually connects to the main story somehow. I'm pretty sure that's what's going to happen. Yeah, and that too. Like, even if these ten stories just connected with each other, that would be cool. But I think part of the hints are going to be tied up in the main story as well. Like, something from somewhere, I feel like, is going to connect at some point. Or if anything, it'll, it will all lead up to an event that's going to start the main story. That's going to, um, even if it's not, like, related to the plot of the main story, it's going to pull us into it. Sure. Like, we don't know where the angel from the Boros story disappeared to that at that one point, and the kid from the Demir story disappeared. Are we going to have a story in the future where, like, someone's eating a fruit and a kid just pops up and takes it and pops away? Like, is that baby going to show up again? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know. Now I am excited to see what carries forward in future stories, and y'all should really pay attention to all the little details. I kind of wish that they had been really obvious that they were going to all be connected in some cool way from the beginning because although I liked these stories, I had a really hard time at the beginning like getting into them, mm-hmm. uh, getting getting invested in them. Um, was until the Boros story that I like, and I don't want to say I didn't care about them, like I didn't like them, but I just couldn't get personally drawn into them. But if I knew that there was going to be some payoff, then well, I would have been way more excited from the beginning. So I didn't know what they were going to be at first, and I was a little disappointed to hear that they weren't going to be, like, the actual block story. Yeah, exactly. Knowing how well they're constructed, I, I mean, I talked about this last week, talking about Chronicle of Bolas and the whole way Kate Elliott wove a bunch of story elements together throughout each of the episodes. We now have concrete proof that Nikki Drayden is doing something similar with these stories, where little background elements are going to be all related. It really makes it feel like all these little side stories are taking place in the same world at the same time. 
that we're not just getting like 10 unrelated stories that have to do with the guild. That's what they did last time in Return to Ravnica. I think that was one weakness of Return to Ravnica in that the flavor of the different guilds really felt like they were not on the same world. Yeah. And that wasn't as much the case in original Ravnica. And y'all know that I'm a Return to Ravnica stan, so I don't hate it, but that was like probably his main weakness, that like the flavor was not tied together between the guilds at all. They might as well have been on different planes. It's tricky because the guilds are very strong branding, so there's definitely a force that wants the guilds to be branded individually because they are the choose your faction brand is strong. But then there's the urban connection. All these guilds are in the same world and having them all together means you have lots of characters who can act in different ways and interact in unique situations. Those forces kind of pull at opposite ends. It's difficult to pull off a world like Ravnica, I think. The whole theme of Return to Ravnica was they all had to team up together, but they didn't even like look like they should exist in the same. But anyway... Well, and then y'all have to team up, and by team up we mean we're going to have Jace, who isn't part of any guild. Do everything. In terms of Jace's narrative, it feels like the ten guilds were literally like ten brands that he has to negotiate between. Hey, he had Amara. He was working with Amara. Well, who's part of one of the guilds, and who was one of the maze runners. There's lots of different ways to tell stories and to explore worlds, and the first two Ravnica blocks did it in slightly different ways, and this feels more like the original Ravnica block. I definitely agree on that. And I like that the story connected with the Boros story directly. And like I said, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens in the future. But that is all for this episode this week. So final thoughts. Ashley. This is always on my mind if I'm not thinking about Mary Lager and Rakul. But two things in the story. Number one, you know who else couldn't fly? Feather. And also... The name of the fungus is also referential to someone who is missing, and that is Feather. Bozak equals Feather confirmed. It's the angel's wing fungus. And you know what is on an angel's wing? It is a feather. <laughs> also skin. Yes, skin. Or cartilage. And then the Boros story had another angel who had bound wings. X-Files theme. That just makes me think of there's a screenshot from one of the episodes where Mulder is giving a confused look to a cat and the meme just captions it, are you a UFO? Which makes me laugh every time because that's literally what Mulder does on the show. I, I love X-Files a lot. I've said it before, I think Feather is going to show up in the third set because the third set is not bound to the factioning of Ravnica. So you can have cards like Feather and Fibblethip and Krenko show up if you want. So good luck having y'all's final thoughts beat that. <laughs> yeah, well, let's see what Brian has. Do you have a final thought that beats that? Oh, man. My final thought, I guess, is going to be, once again, back to Ravnica d and I literally cannot wait. Until it ticks over to midnight Eastern, and I can start reading my book on D&D Beyond, because I have all day tomorrow off, I cannot wait to read and see what they have in store for us on there, and See how that all ties back. You get a little bit of the broken pack, but I want all the nitty-gritty details. So, really excited for that. You know what I'm more excited for than Ravnica D&D? Ravnica DDR. Oh, boy. The crossover no one expected, but everyone turns out to want. Fair enough. My final thought this week. I am currently working on a Xantra Sleeper Agent Commander deck. And as of Orthos... One of the things I love to do in Commander is 
make sure the basic lands in my deck match the home plane of the commander that they belong to. In situations where we don't know where the commander is from, I like to just imagine the best case scenario. So like I have a Gave deck, we don't know what plane Gave is from. So for him, I used a jungly looking planes from Alara, a swamp from Kamigawa with the mushroom houses because he's a mushroom person, and a forest, I think from Time Spiral that has a bunch of mushrooms on it too. So I'm running into an issue with Zancha. She's from Frexia. The only set that we have had cards set on Frexia from in any kind of real capacity is the Urza's block. Urza's block did a thing where all the white cards were on Sarah's realm, all the blue cards were Talaria, all the black cards were Frexia, all the red cards were Shiv, and green cards, I think, depended on the set in that block. The problem with Zanja is she is a black-red commander. I technically have an option for swamps, but I don't particularly like those swamps. They're not very appealing, and they don't really read Frexia to me. I don't know if those followed that five-world pattern. So I feel really iffy about using those swamps. And then obviously the mountain, like Frexia has no mountains. It's a world consumed by black mana, so I, I don't have a mountain to use. And I'm very, I'm very conflicted, and... I'm not sure if I want to fudge because Zancha's Heartstone ends up inside Karn, who creates Argentum, which becomes Mirrodin, which becomes Nufrexia. So I don't know if I want to fudge and find some more Mirrodin-y basics to use. Maybe ones from Nufrexia. I don't know. Anyway, it's a thing I'm thinking about, and it's a thing I like, and, and we'll see how it goes. I definitely understand your dilemma because personally I have the same feeling towards Lorwyn for my Worth the Redeemed Elves deck. I'm just like, I hate the Shadowmoor lands and the Lorwyn lands aren't that much better as far as what I'm looking for. So like, I'm thinking I might just stick with Unhinged. I have a theme that I do with my lands and my commander decks that everybody hates and y'all are probably going to hate it too. Do you want to know what it is? What? I use white border lands because I like it. That makes them easy to find, too. Yeah, it's because I want them to look different. There's a lot of cards there, and I'm going to forget how to play. Don't know what everything is. Also, why people like full art lands. Also known as fart lands. If you also like fart lands and would like to support the fart land community, you can visit patreon.com slash thevorthoscast, where you can donate your fart land money to help keep this show running. We cannot produce this podcast without your donations, so we appreciate everyone who has supported the show and everyone who keeps listening every week to us ramble about all kinds of wonderful things in the Vorthos community. Everyone who supports us on Patreon gets access to our Discord community where patrons are interacting with us and each other and having a good time being Magic fans and enjoying the exciting Vorthos stuff that is happening. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast.